Welcome to the Speaking Light into Abortion podcast, where I talk about all the reasons it's possible for you to thrive after your abortion. I'm your host, Amanda Kingsley, and two years after my own abortion, I certified as a life coach so I could serve women after abortion in all the ways they've been deserving and lacking for centuries. Consider this your launchpad for finding strength and community in yourselves and in each other. All right, another podcast week. Super excited today. Um, I reached out to Reverend Katie Zay, maybe it was definitely a few weeks back, maybe yeah. a month. And at the beginning of my week, I was like, ooh, Friday, podcast interview. <laughs> so I'm super pumped to have you here. I love the space that you're filling. I, as um, particularly as someone who wasn't raised religious, am deeply fascinated by people with all the love and heart and like, to me, like the true spirit of God in their work, which is what feels like your work in the reproductive space is. Um, so I'm going to let you introduce yourself to this audience, um, whatever feels right for today, and then we'll chat. Okay. That sounds good. Well, I'm so glad to be connecting in this way. I'm a big admirer of your work. And even though you don't have a specifically religious background, I think there's a lot of overlap and intersection with the yeah. approach that I take. So I actually find what you do very spirit-filled as someone who does claim to be a person of faith. So I'll just, I'll just say it that way. Hopefully that's um, amenable to you as someone who does. I love that. that way. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that too. <laughs> yeah, good. I'm Reverend Katie Zay. I'm an ordained Baptist minister. I serve as the CEO of the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice or RCRC. And uh, my next book is coming out in January of 2022. It's called A Complicated Choice, Making Space for Grief and Healing in the Pro-Choice Movement. Mm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like the book that I always imagined <laughs> writing and never really made it to. So I cannot wait to read your book. I'm so oh, excited. I'm excited um, to share it with you. I really, truly think this is the unspoken stuff that, that we all need to hear. Like it's to just be able to hold that gigantic and Yes. Like, yes, we need abortion access. Yes, everyone should be able to make that choice for whatever reason they need to. And for a lot of us, it comes with grief. And like not acknowledging that is in such disservice. So, Absolutely. oh, I'm so excited to read. Um, how, like, is this a book you've been working on for a long time? Or how does a book like not... this evolve for you? <laughs> I did not expect to write a book during COVID. I will just put it that way. But that that is when the opportunity okay. came along. It okay. was a few months into the pandemic. My my then five-year-old daughter was home with no childcare. I was trying to figure out how to run a nonprofit virtually during the pandemic. And here comes this opportunity to write a book. And I don't know why I said yes. And I will tell you that the reason that I could write this book is because so many amazing people were open with me about their stories mm. of their abortions. Mm -hmm. It is a storytelling book. It is not about me. It is mm -hmm. about these amazing, courageous, complicated, beautiful people who mm. were willing to open up their hearts 
to me and share. And, and my job was simply to find a way to weave their stories together for mm. the book. So it's really a communal book in that sense yeah, that I, I was just holding space like you do for people's real experiences and had the the privilege and the honor to put them together in a book and share them yeah. with the world. So if I'd had to write a book just out of my own like imagination, I could not have done it, but because these beautiful people came forward and shared their stories with mm. me, I was able to write it in seven months. Oh my goodness. I I will disagree with you and say, I think that you could have probably come up with a whole book of your own amazing content. Oh gosh. But I, I love that. Um, I think everything we do is, is a collective project, right? Like nothing we do is ours. I feel like so much comes through me. Like, I'm like, this isn't even mine. I don't even know where this is coming from. Or I'll go back and read it and be like, I didn't write that. Like that wasn't inspiration. Yeah. I mean, inspiration, how it works. It's just being a part of this collective experience we're all having. So, oh my goodness. Okay. So someone said, Hey, will you write a book? What was that (laughs) decision-making process of like, is this what I have the capacity to do right now? And once you decided, were you just like, okay, God's got me. I got me like whatever's meant to be is going to come through. Oh, I wish I were that chill. So this is my, <laughs> this is my second book. I published my first book in 2019 and I wasn't really That's ready so to fast. write a second one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, w- it was fast. It was definitely fast. And it was, that was a long, much longer process, right? The first one, I think because I hadn't done it before. But when the opportunity, it was kind of one of those networking things where I had the opportunity to talk to an editor and a publisher, Mm -hmm. and I had a couple of ideas. And honestly, this was not the book that I pitched. I pitched a much broader book about reproductive loss in which Mm -hmm. abortion would be a part of it. But I kind of wanted to weave together, you know, infertility, miscarriage, you know, maybe just not finding a partner or not being able to have a child for whatever reason. And I pitched that book first. And then they were like, we want you to write about abortion. We want the whole book about abortion. I was kind of like, okay, that feels, even as someone who's worked in this space for a long time, that felt really scary to me because you know, as well as I do how rough our opposition is. But then I thought this is the book that I can write. And so I'm going to be brave and I'm going to think about it. And I'm going to, I'm going to pitch that book. And, and when I did, the publisher said, gave me the green light and said, yes, we want you to write this book. So Mm. it was, it was kind of a matter of just like my finding my own inner strength to say, okay, I'm going to do this for real. Like I'm really going to put myself out there and be okay with it. And I, frankly, I know that probably some of the folks who agree with me on being pro-choice are maybe not going to love parts of this book, because I really am saying we haven't done a great job of creating space for people to show up authentically with their full complex stories that often involve grief, even regret sometimes. Um, and that that's okay. We can still hold space for that, but folks tend to get a little uncomfortable with grief. As you know, grief is a really uncomfortable thing for us culturally, especially as white people. Um, but it felt so important to, to broaden that conversation because until we do that, people really can't show up authentically in their experiences and they feel pushed out Yeah, and they feel silenced and shamed. Yeah. I think the, the movement to break the stigma through 
empowerment and like, I love my story. I love my choice. I love my life. Like abortion is amazing. It's so valuable and important. And also I'm like, we got to break the stigma with like, I'm sad. And mm-hmm. when I, and even like you said, I, I do regret my choice. And this is not me personally, but um, I, with my clients, I'm like, you get to keep that. You know, you can yeah. live an amazing empowered life and have regrets. Totally. Okay. Um, right. So I do think this is like the next layer of breaking down the stigma is like, mm-hmm. why are we so afraid of sadness? Why are we so yeah. afraid of regret? Why are we so afraid of those yucky feelings like guilt, shame? What if we just feel those, move through them, learn from them, and then like kick some ass being people who can do that? (laughs) Um, Right, right. Feelings can teach us a lot and they can also, sometimes we have to challenge the narratives that come with the feelings. I think that that's, I think that's why even in my own life, as I'm thinking about resisting negative emotions. It's often because they lead to a story that isn't true that I have to challenge and say, I can feel that feeling of sadness. And it doesn't mean that I did a bad thing. It doesn't mean that I made the wrong decision. I'm just sad. Totally. Yeah. Right. And it's going to pass. Feelings are not for forever, but I think that's when I look at the opposition specifically and the kind of work that they do to bring people in who've had abortions, who are feeling sadness, who are experiencing grief. And then they give them a narrative about God that makes them feel shame and tells them that they, they did the, the wrong thing. And I think folks are so vulnerable to that because of feelings they have. And so that's really why I want to try the book is to say, just as we were talking before, have the feelings, but question the narrative about what the feelings are about. Oh, so good. Can you give an example of a narrative that a lot of people have adopted and is worth some questioning? Oh yeah, well, I could come up with a lot, but I think at the, when I think about folks that I've journeyed with, because I got my start when I was in seminary in a procedure room as a really untrained abortion doula, to be honest, I wasn't mm. trained, but I was, I was pulled in and, and asked to accompany people during their procedures. So I did often have these kinds of conversations with people in the moment. And it's that, you know, is God going to punish me yeah. for having, for having killed my baby is a big one, right? And people perceive the feelings of guilt or sadness as punishment from God. And honestly, that's, that's in in scripture too, right? Like, why is, why is this happening to me? Why am I feeling this way? Like we want to have an explanation, even if the explanation makes us feel worse. Oh, so Instead of just sitting in the unknown and in the mystery Mm -hmm. of the, I don't know. Right. And so all I could say to them in that moment was you are deeply loved. And I know that God is here with you in your pain and will continue to journey alongside you. And I'm here too. Right. Yeah. Like that's often what people need is just the accompaniment work. And again, I think what you're doing in coaching is that kind of accompaniment work of just holding presence for people, giving them space to work it out and saying, you don't have to do this by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way you worded that, that like we interpret the guilt, the shame, the grief as the punishment. Yeah. And I, I feel like I say so often, do you know why you're feeling that? 
whatever mm-hmm. it is, insert feeling. And they look at me like, oh, I just told you. And I'm like, yeah, you're feeling that because you're human. Like this is a yeah. part of your human experience. If you weren't feeling this guilt, shame, sadness about this, it would be about something else. Like this is just yeah. part of your human experience. This isn't it have hold meaning to what choices you've made or um or what you've done or any of it. It's like this is yeah. just being human. And yeah. so when we can like step into that, it's like, oh, I'm sad because I'm human. I have yeah. shame because I'm human. <laughs> like what? Yeah. And probably too interrogating all the conditioning that's attached to a lot of those feelings too, of, of what we're, you know, quote unquote, supposed to do or be or want or desire, right? Like there is a lot of that social conditioning. And if, if you grew up in a, in a Christian tradition, especially an evangelical tradition, there's a lot of conditioning about what it means to be a parent and all of that stuff that like folks really do have to interrogate that for themselves. So it's like being human and it's being human in this society that's white and patriarchal and um, hetero sexist and all of the classist, all of those things, right? Like layer onto the feelings. It is very, it's complicated. That's it's complicated. It's a complicated choice. Hmm, that'd be a good book title. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I did not come up with that, but my publisher did and they're very smart. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay. You briefly, briefly mentioned, but I want to go back. Like, how did you land in the space of um, reproductive justice, like reproductive um, well-being um, in the first place? Like how, how as um, a person of faith, did you end up in this work? First of all, I love the phrase reproductive well-being. I love that. Did you come up with that? I just, I don't know where it came from. Okay. Well, I love that (laughs) very much. Um, So I was, I was a seminary student and I honestly didn't know why I was there. I was just avoiding the real world, I think. And I loved school. So I ended up at Yale Divinity School after college, right, right away, no break. And I got so disenchanted with the academy feeling so far removed from real people's lives. I was very, very hungry for practical ministry stuff. And actually the organization I now run had a program that they brought to campus around pastoral. It was called pastoral care for reproductive decisions and loss, or there were two different Mm. ones. And I was Mm -hmm. like, sign me up. I want to know about this. So I learned some of those skills of how to accompany people making decisions or experiencing loss. And then I thought to myself, I need to actually use this stuff because I can learn it. But if I, if I'm not implementing it, you Mm, know, what good is it? And I had never been in an abortion clinic. I had not needed to have an abortion myself. I was kind of clueless about it. And so I ended up just wanting to go take a tour and there was an abortion clinic, a Planned Parenthood, just a block away from the campus. So I signed up, I went in, I experienced what it was like to walk into the clinic as someone perceived to be someone needing an abortion, which I write about in my book and like really confronting my own stigma for the first time of what that felt Mm. like going, like, I wanted to say, I'm not here to have an abortion. Why is that so important to me that they know? So I walk in, I have this beautiful experience of just kind of shadowing the different staff. Um, and also recognizing, like I had not, I had my own, I had my own stuff to deal with around abortion. Like I definitely still do around, around stigma and all of that stuff. Like you were talking about earlier, 
but I really fell in love with it. And so I asked if I could volunteer regularly that summer when I was out of school. And so I went every week and then I ended up one day, they needed somebody in the procedure room. And I just said, mm. yes, I'm a people pleaser. But I really do think that that was a spirit led thing because all of these people let me into one of their most vulnerable moments. And even though I didn't know what I was doing, I was a little scared. I was nervous, just offering my awkward presence to people in those moments was comforting for me, for them. And it was impactful for me Yeah. and seeing the love and the care of the doctors and the nurses and the staff, while all of the religious people outside were being so hateful and harassing people. I just thought as someone who's in seminary training to be a minister, I have to be, I have to do something different. I, I can't, I've got to bridge this divide you know, cause the real ministry to me was happening in the abortion room and I wanted to be part of it. And so for me, that, that was the catalyzing moment. I talk about it as my call to ministry that oh, happened in the abortion wow. room. And I've been on a journey ever since of, of figuring out how to bring, you know, my gifts and skills. And obviously a lot of learning has happened since then I've had to deal with my own whiteness and white saviorism in that space. Um, but I keep showing up, trying to do better and, and hope to be someone who brings healing into this space as a person of faith. Mm, amazing. So it sounds like there was definitely some major transformation in school. What were you raised to believe about abortion? What were the beliefs you were coming to that with? Yeah, I'm kind of unusual, I think, in the sense that I grew up in Southeast Georgia, where pretty much everybody's evangelical, like including Catholics my family did not raise us in the church. So I didn't really have a whole lot of exposure directly until I was about eight or nine years old. And my maternal grandmother who was dying of cancer started going back to church, which is the thing that many people do when they're sick. So that was my first entry into organized religion. And I found it fascinating. I think because it had not been part of my upbringing, I found the whole thing so fascinating. And so after she died, it was a way for me to stay connected to her. And that's when I got much more immersed in evangelical culture and, and purity culture and all of the um, beliefs about, you know, this is the way, the truth, the life, like really getting immersed in a Christianity that's very exclusive um, and doesn't allow for questioning and things like that. That was my kind of, that was my entry into it, you know, but I, it wasn't until I was a little bit older. Um, so the funny thing is that I, I imagine that my faith community was anti-choice. I don't remember it being something that was talked about much at all, but it was kind of implied. Um, and that that's the thing about Christian culture is because the, the right has so co-opted the narrative that it's almost like you don't even have to explain it for people to just assume that people, people who are religious are anti-choice, which is absolutely not true, but it's almost like you don't even have to talk about it for people to, to think that. Yeah. And so I don't feel like I ever got really clear messages about abortion, but I definitely got abortion stigma from somewhere. I think it's mm -hmm. like in the, I think it's like in the, in the air, in the water that, yeah. you know, that's something that other people do, you know, not me. I definitely picked that up. I don't know if it was from the church or from the culture or where, but I supported it, but not but from a place of stigma and judgment for sure. Yeah. Until I well, I mean, that. I have that judgment pretty strong in me. Like as soon as I find out someone has 
a religious faith, like my walls go up. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they don't accept so. me. Right. Like, so I get that, like, even from this side, I, and I have to, I have to check myself like, whoa, dude, like slow the pace down. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it may, it makes a lot of sense. And I think there's a lot of the history that's gotten erased. And one of the things I love to share with people, because it's one of these pieces of history that's not been lost, but has been covered up is, so my organization started, its roots are in the clergy consultation service on abortion, where clergy, white men, mm-hmm. pre-row, were getting, were forming networks to get folks safe abortion care. So that's wow. where our roots are. And I mean, wow. that clergy activism was was it was seen as brave it was seen as courageous and it was robust they were in 38 states but it's really been i talk about this in the book the rise of the religious right and its conflation with politics with political power has erased that narrative of people of faith who have always journeyed alongside folks who have needed abortion care Mm. from the beginning of time honestly and it's it's really frustrating as someone who's trying to work to show that narrative that's always been there, but it's been, and honestly, the media doesn't do a great job of kind of like the religious literacy side of really talking about precisely who do we mean, because we're talking generally about white Catholics and we're talking about white conservative evangelicals and fundamentalists. We're not talking about the Jewish people, for example, for whom abortion is part of their religious freedom, right? Um, I almost said what I really mean is Christian. Once I find out someone's Christian, my flags go up, but yeah. And like a very specific kind of Christian too, because Mm -hmm. mainline Protestants for the most part have, they've been part of our organization for a long time. It's really like a specific kind of white evangelical. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've, we've talked about like white Christian supremacy. That's really what it's about to me. Mm -hmm. It's really about control and power, political power. Yeah. And using abortion as a convenient organizing tool. And honestly, you can read about it in the book and lots of other people have talked about it, but, but it's that conflation with political power that I think has been so yeah. strong and in influencing the way that people think about it. It's really frustrating because oh, it has created this like monolithic story of what it means. And for me, like the Christian story is about liberation. It's about justice. It's about compassion. Mm-hmm. It's about love. And it's gotten weaponized you know, to, to stigmatize abortion, to marginalize LGBTQ people, um, to justify all kinds of injustices. Right. And that's why people like me have to continue speaking out and saying, you don't speak for me. In fact, what you're saying is antithetical to the core teachings of every major religious tradition, which talks about love for neighbor, you know, love for self, compassion, justice, care for the poor, like those are the core tenets and anything else really is, I'm going to use their word, an abomination of, of true, true like faith, really. Yeah, like yeah. to me, God is about freedom. It's about freedom and love and mm. care for each other. Mm. I know when you said, when you were talking about clergy activism earlier, yeah. I just wrote those words down. Cause I was like, isn't it wild that like the activism was was standing up for liberation and justice and love like yeah that should be the norm right like but then that becomes the the activism yeah so wild and I appreciate so much um like for me I'm like oh well it's easy for me to just speak out 
about all this stuff because I don't have that background. Like I have just so much admiration for, for the work that you're doing to be able to use this voice um, because so many people will hear you differently than they hear me because of that religious faith, because of that belief. I was listening to it. I'm trying to remember the title of it, but um, Glennon Doyle had an episode recently on We Can Do Hard Things. Mm -hmm. It might have been, um, I don't know. It, there, there was one recently titled Queer Something. Anyway, it might have been that one, but I found my jaw dropped most of that episode because my brain was just like, whoa. She like really loves Jesus and stands against all this stuff. And I was like, this is wild. This is like blowing my brain. Um, and it actually made me want to study more. Like it made me want to learn and study and understand religion from a place that was not just like all the things that I learned, all the, the ways I was repelled by Christianity. Mm -hmm. So Right. Um, yeah. I'll link to the episode for sure when I, when I find it, but I was just like, wow, this is a game changer for me. Like hearing the, the love in, in Christian religion from a place oh, yeah. truly accepts everyone. I was like, how did this yeah. make no sense in my brain? Well, do you mind if I share like one of the central stories for me that influences yeah, my work? Please. So there's a story in the gospels like of an unnamed woman who has experienced hemorrhages for 12 years mm. and she's gone to doctors. They've all made her worse. And she finds out that Jesus is going to be walking through her town. Now at those times, she would not have been permitted to touch anyone because she was considered unclean because of this bleeding. But the text says, she thinks to herself, if I just touch his cloak, I'll be made well. So she comes up from behind him and she touches the hem of his garment. So not even making contact with him. I have full body chills, by the way, just, just so yeah. you know. <laughs> it gives me chills too. So she touches. I've never the, even read scripture and I'm like, what's that's good? how powerful this story is. <laughs> yeah. She touches his cloak. She feels herself healed. He stops and goes, who touched me? So he, mm. she catalyzes her own healing for one. Mm. And in that moment, I imagine she makes the decision. Am I going to speak up? Or am I going to just leave? But she chooses to tell her story. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And I've often thought about, okay, the faith to be made well is the reaching out and the touching, which is huge. But also the decision to tell her whole truth. Yeah. And for everyone to hear it. And I think it's, it's not just an individual healing story. It's about the collective. And for me, that story is so central to reproductive freedom because mm. she knows what she needs for her own healing. She doesn't ask for permission. Mm. She reaches out for it. And Jesus blesses her, calls her daughter and says, your faith has made you well. Like he is not the protagonist of this story. He is the, wow. he is moved by her, you know? And I think there are other stories like that, but for me, that is the central one when it comes to this issue, because it's like, we already know what we need within ourselves. Yeah. She is moved by her intuition, her divine guidance, whatever you want to call, call it to do something that was not socially allowed, Oof. but that heals her. Right. Yeah. That's why I can't give this stuff up because that is still a very powerful story as mm. you felt in your body. So yeah. for me, you know, I get 
folks not wanting to participate in organized religion and all of that, but there, there are some truths, there's some wisdom in our sacred texts that I refuse to allow the opposition to, to take control over, you know, like that's my text too. Right. And we can find liberation in it. And I think, you know, the more space we can create for people to find ways of understanding their faith, whatever that is, you know, through these stories, I want to be, you know, one person who can offer a different understanding of how these texts work and hope people can find healing and liberation in them. Mm, It's so beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Um, Is there anything that surprised you when you were writing the book? Anything that you hadn't anticipated bumping into? Um. I was, that's a good question. I think some of the, the real health complications that people experience during pregnancy, I had not encountered before. I mean, Mm. there's so many things that can go wrong. And I know for most people, that's not the, the reason that they terminate, but like really thinking about what folks go through during pregnancy, it's not, it's often life-threatening in lots of different ways. Like talking to people who had severe mental health issues on the brink of, of dying by suicide because of their pregnancy or just the complications that would have them in the having to go to the hospital every week. And just like really thinking about how pregnancy can be such a life-threatening condition on so many levels. Yeah. You know, and just realizing I only interviewed like 18 people, just how many more different kinds of stories that are out there that, that I couldn't include in the book, you know, and how distinctly individual everybody's experience is while also very communal in the sense of what the barriers to access are, what the stigma is. It's like everybody's story is unique and universal at the same Mm -hmm. time. So I really struggled to organize them because there were so many touch points. It was like, how do you pull these apart and then weave them together? Because there were so many, all the stories have overlap in lots Mm -hmm. of different ways, but it really was some of the complications that I didn't know about that people experienced. And I thought, wow, like we have no idea what people go through. Yeah. Our pregnancies are very celebrated, but they're also very silent. We we don't talk about it. And we don't talk about how hard it was. I mean, we do in the general sense of like complaining, but we don't talk about how hard it is because once the baby comes, the story is it was worth it. We don't need to hear about it because it was worth it. Um, That's so good. That's so true. It's so, it's like so much around reproductive well-being. We'll use that again. (laughs) I like that. I have three children and my third, I spent 17 weeks on my couch, like, Oh my gosh. And so he was born and it was a couple years later, I had the unplanned pregnancy, which led to my abortion. And I sometimes hesitate to even share that story because I'm like, people will say, Oh, of course you had an abortion. You didn't want to have another hard pregnancy. I'm like, no, that's not it. But like, did it factor in for sure? Yeah. I was like, now I have three kids. What if I end up on the couch for like 27 weeks? <laughs> like, right. Um, but yeah, even that, like, it was definitely a part of my decision-making and I, I try not to share it too much because I don't want it used against the story, but mm-hmm. like, that's ridiculous too, because it was a part of my story. Like it was a piece of my decision-making to be like, pregnancy is hard. Right. 
do I want to do this? It's a long time. It's a long time. Yeah. But even what you said about just like not wanting to disclose certain parts of your story because of how you know it's going to be weaponized. Yes. I hear that all the time too. Like a lot of the folks I interviewed are public storytellers. And some of them chose in my book to not have their names attached because they don't want their public facing storytelling work to get messed up because of what they're telling me for the book. Right. It's so complicated of just like, if you share any little insight about something, people are going to take it and run with it and make all kinds of assumptions about your story rather than just giving you space to explain if you choose to. Like, why do we always have to understand and justify other people's decisions about their pregnancies instead just hold space and compassion to say you don't have to tell me anything I'm just going to make sure that you get the care and support you need right like yeah. we got to move into that space mm-hmm. not in a oh I can understand why you would have done that it doesn't matter if you understand it or not yeah and so central in all of this and is probably what I imagine you doing in a lot of your work is like we struggle to tell our stories, but we maybe more importantly, certainly linked struggle to listen to stories, Mm. right? Because like when we're listening to story, we're always looking for that piece that we can latch onto and like attaches our own or like make the highlight of the person's experience, even when they didn't share that. And so yeah, like what comes first, the chicken or the egg, us telling our whole story or like starting to listen to people's stories in a different way and be able to not send them through like the filters we're so used to sending them through. Um, yeah, yeah, that's really good. I feel like you must do a lot of that work, a lot of just at, the word that I'm wanting to say is active listening, but I don't even know. (laughs) The word active even sounds like not, we we just want to be right. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't need to be an action or an activity. Like speak a little bit to your listening experience. Yeah. I think, I, I think I give off an energy to people, strangers and others that I'm someone they can talk to about anything. And so I often find myself in situations where people very quickly disclose all kinds of things to me, which I take as a real sacred honor. I really do. Sometimes it's a little overwhelming, but I think I just give off that energy to people. So I feel like it's part of my purpose being on this planet Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. And so I'm often the, the first person that people tell that they had an abortion. And I think it is about not filling the silence. It's about asking Mm. thoughtful questions. It's about just mirroring back, you know, that must've been really hard. Or what I'm hearing you say is X, Y, Z. And like interrogating as I'm listening, am I interrogating any kind of judgment that comes up, right? Mm. Like doing that sort of work internally so that I'm not projecting that onto the person in front of me. And, And what you said about you know, not taking people through the scripts. That's true of so many things. When people are grieving, people say, oh, all kinds, like at funerals. I don't know if you've ever like heard people say awkward things at funerals, but people like, we're so uncomfortable with people's sadness, you know, and just being okay with it being awkward. Like I'm reading this book right now that my friend Shannon Dingle wrote called Living Brave. 
And Mm. she's somebody who's dealt with a lot of trauma. Her husband died really tragically um, on a beach trip. And she talks about like just the awkwardness of grief and like the awkwardness of vulnerability. And if we're, if we allow ourselves to be awkward, I think that that actually provides what people need, right? Where it's like, there's nothing to say. Yes. But I'm here. Like, I don't know what to say. I love you. I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. How comforting is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like no words. We can give so much to the world if we just start getting comfortable feeling awkward, comfortable in yes. the discomfort. Yeah. 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 But we're so uncomfortable in general that as soon as that awkward space comes up, we just need to fill it. And so we say whatever comes to our mind. I'm so guilty of this. So guilty of this. When I'm in um, my, my work before coaching was as a doula. Mm. And it is like, you kind of put on a different, you know, you, you put yourself into the doula space. You put yourself into the coaching space. And in that space, I use different tools. I hold different energy. But in natural conversation, I catch myself doing this stuff all the time. I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, just, just reacting. There's a lot of reacting. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Allow yourself to be awkward. Allow it to be awkward. Yeah. And it's okay to say, hey, I feel awkward about this, but I'm still going to be here. Right. Like, can we just say that part? Of, right. I don't even know what to say. Yeah. But I'm here, yeah. you know, because a lot of times people don't even need us to say anything specific. It's the feeling that they have when they're with us. And I think when we say unintentionally hurtful things, that's what they're left with. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I have a tendency to be a problem solver too. Yes. Like I just want to fix. Right. So yeah. I really like doula, doula hat. I got my holding space coaching hat. I got my holding space, but I parenting is a place I really have to like, I just want to fix, fix, fix. Right. It's, it's much harder for me to listen and be present in, in that space where I'm like, I've got a solution. (laughs) I know in my friendships too. Like, yeah. So it is interesting to notice all those parts of yourself too. Yeah. Like what, what am I thinking and feeling in a coaching session or, or doula work that allows me to be present in a different way? Yeah. And I think so much of those examples you gave, and I identify with that as a parent too, which I think is maybe one of the hardest parts is saying someone else's emotions are not mine to manage. This is right? literally, oh. I work on a new belief every week. And my belief I'm working on this week is I'm not responsible for the way other people experience life. And it's like, so yes, like I am responsible as in like, I do set things up for certain things to happen, but like, I am not responsible for the way my kids feel. Right. right? Like, that's their right. work. That's yes. their work. And all I need to do is be there for that. But sometimes it's so hard. <laughs> It's no, it is so hard, especially, I mean, I identify as empathic. I really do feel people's stuff in my body. Mm-hmm. And so it is super uncomfortable yeah. when someone else is sitting in front of me who's sad or anxious, but the more work we can do to manage our own feelings and separate our feelings from other people's feelings yeah. that actually does allow us to provide that 
presence that they need. And I, I do the same thing with my kid. She's only yeah. six, right? But I'm like, she stomps around through the house and I'm like, what's wrong? You know, and I want to know. Right. And I'm like, you know what? She knows she's like working it out. If she, right. needs, she knows I'm here, I don't have to go hound her to figure out what it is so I can make it better. It's like, she's actually working through it on her own yeah. and I can provide some tools, which I'm sure you do in coaching and in your doula work, you can provide tools, right. ideas if they're open yeah. to it, yeah. but like actually managing the emotion mm-hmm. that doesn't belong to us. Yeah. So hard. This makes me want to do a whole episode about listening, especially for people who come to the show, wanting to support someone through, through an abortion. Um, I feel like, you know, I, I do have a lot of those tools, but it's, it's not an expertise of mine. And because I've been through it and I have my own stories, like I would love to do a whole episode just on listening. I love that. What did you maybe come to the show today thinking you would, you would want to share or something that's come up in our conversation that you, that you feel like someone needs to hear what's, what's not said yet on this episode. (laughs) I guess I would just reiterate a core message, which if nothing else, no matter what you've heard, you know, there are many, many people of faith who are supportive of folks making the reproductive decisions that are best for them, that are ready and willing to hold space for that and who are working to change policy and culture so that people don't have to live with the shame and the stigma mm. that they are right now. So I just want folks to know that. And if, if you are someone who has asked those kinds of God questions about your abortion, just to know that at the end of the day, God is love and God journeys with us through every single experience that we go through. So just know that you're never alone and that you have God within you as well. Okay. A question's coming up for me. Okay. (laughs) Um, there are certain times that you just like, feel like, Oh, I'll never forget how I felt when I heard that. And I remember a friend of mine saying after my abortion, um, I did find a support counselor in my area and it went pretty regularly and it was helpful. And then after many sessions, they said to me, Um, and it was faith-based, Christian-based counseling, but this particular person was just so desperate for someone to listen. She was all in, and then at the very end, they said, we're so glad you found us so that this doesn't happen to your next baby, so it was like this. Everything in her that felt healed Mm. just got like torn open. So my question is so many people find, um, for instance, crisis pregnancy centers or, um, or there's a very well-known retreat that I've heard this happen at. Yes. How do we as consumers in such a vulnerable time find support that we can actually trust that isn't manipulating us that doesn't have their own agenda like what are some of your thoughts on that honestly I know what I just said this is going to sound contradictory I would say anything that you find on the internet that claims a Christian orientation around this work 
I would be highly suspicious of because yeah. the, the folks who in, have intentionally gotten into that kind of work, they do often have an agenda. So I'm sure you talk about mental health care on this podcast. Right. I really think for most people I've talked to who are people of faith where they've gotten the most help have been trained mental health care professionals. Mm. Um, even if they're not someone with the spiritual background, anybody who's trained in mental health care should be able to talk you through your spiritual questions. Yeah. Um, so I would say if you're feeling super vulnerable, I wouldn't put yourself in a situation where you might be manipulated or I would ask yeah. a lot of questions, but just to be perfectly frank, like what I see out there and even in the books that I've gotten, even the stuff that appears to be neutral, there is often another agenda at play. And I'm so sorry that that happened to your friends. It's so hard because even I've come across a few websites where I'm like, whoa, oh, this is good. This is good. It and then good. I find that tiny little link where I'm like, damn it, yep. they even got me. I know. So I They're think really there's an element. That. Yeah, really. There's two things that are coming up for me. One is an element of like, there's, there's nothing wrong with me slash you for... Um, not you, Katie, but like you, the listener, um, for, for having trust in that moment and having hope and believing in someone who implied they could help you. Like, of course, it, you know, just remembering like, I'm not broken or wrong or for having trusted that person, you know, no, that's, not at that's all. you're being manipulated. <laughs> totally. It's so sucky. And then the other thing that's coming up for me is I have had this happen to me one particular time I'm thinking of where someone um, said to me, I, I just can't come up with the money right now to work with you and I can get this other counseling for free. Right. And then they send me the link and I'm like, fuck. <laughs> right. And so yes. that's that becomes a tricky place too is like a lot of that support is not financially based because there is an agenda because right um it's not truly supportive care yeah absolutely oh no, it's totally true and i we are doing everything that we can to try to have more resources that are supportive but it is really really difficult um yeah and i i hate to see how people are manipulated and then kind of like moved into a political machine where they're then asked to advocate to end abortion care for other people, right? Yeah, kind of as part yeah. of their penance, it's total mm -hmm. spiritual abuse and manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, it makes me want to share your work even more, um, particularly for people who do have a religious background and they're looking for that, like true, genuine support. Um, but everybody should follow, definitely follow. Um, okay. I'm going to say it wrong. Like I know the full words, the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, but that's like R-C. R-C. Mm -hmm. R-C, our choice. Yes. Okay. You can find us on Instagram, <laughs> yeah. Twitter, Facebook, yeah. all the things. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Unless there's something else that popped up for you. No, I just want to express my gratitude for this conversation that went to some really amazing places I wasn't expecting. And that again, feels very spirit led. So it's, it's been a joy to talk to you. It's spirit led, isn't it? Yes. I'm so glad we connected. 
Um, I really am so excited to read and share your book. And yes, um, a complicated choice. You can pre-order it now anywhere. You can find books on the internet. <laughs> it comes out in January, but you can pre-order it now. Awesome. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. And as always, please consider sharing, rating, and reviewing this podcast. It helps me reach a wider audience and invites more people to thrive after abortion. If you're someone who chose abortion and find yourself struggling, hiding, or wishing you could move beyond your experience, head over to my website and book a free call. We'll talk about how you can start living the life you made your choice for.